To my mind, it's the deconstruction of work the growth of technology which allows for work to be done in a very different way uh, but certainly doesn't support workers in earning a living wage or having security of income to be able to develop their lives in the way that they should. Listeners, and welcome to the Unions 21 podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and the voice you heard before the opening music was that of Karen O'Loughlin from SIP2, talking about what she sees as the major challenges facing our movement. Both she and I were attending the Unions 21 annual conference that was held on Friday the 13th of April uh, at the TUC in London. Friday the 13th, unlucky for some, but not for us. We had over 100 delegates and a stunning array of speakers uh, from the top table, many of whom we'll hear from later on in this podcast. Uh, you'll hear from Matthew Taylor, you'll hear from Gavin Kelly, you'll hear from our own Becky Wright, Paul Novak of the TUC, Claire Sullivan from the Chartered Society of Physiotherapists, Jenny Andrew from Prospect. I could go on and on and on. It's well worth a listen, I can assure you of that. The main theme of the conference was to talk about the future of trade unions. Well, it's a subject that we are preoccupied with, you could say. We've done it to death, you might say, but we've still yet to find the answers. So, as well as identifying the causes of our current challenges... We wanted to set out a roadmap to renewal, a manifesto for change, if you like. And this first session uh, that we'll hear extracts from was all about how we deal uh, with a very challenging landscape. And we know we're under challenge, don't we? Because there's plenty of people who are very keen to tell us what we're doing wrong. Well, Unions 21, as many of you will know, is about creating an open space for thinking and discussion about the world of work and the future of unions within it. Now, there's no doubt we face very many challenges, but what I hope we will do today is have time to think below those headlines about actually what are the key issues facing us, but not just what the problems or the challenges are, but to talk about and share some experience of (coughs) what we can actually do about those. I think the whole context of austerity has brought kind of union issues and, and the wider public issues into alignment. The issues of pay, retention, security at work and so on are are, are issues that everyone's talking about. It's not hard to get people to them. I also think there is a a counter-reaction in the country, not just amongst trade unions, but at large, to employer sharp practices and managerial overreach. And that is a kind of, if you like, a wave to be be kind of ridden by trade unionists, I think. And and, uh, we're seeing some of that, but I think we can see a lot more of it. Trade union, you know, you sing trade unions win. Trade unions win something is a story that I have seen time again over the last two years. I hadn't seen that story much, not ever, but much in the preceding ten years. But you know, and we, and we see that mainly in the courts. And there was a massive challenge, which I think I, I hope we talk about how you convert victories, key strategic victories in law, into membership victories. <laughs> So I wondered kind of how to start this and how to start talking to you all about the roadmap to renewal. We need to see renewal as a holistic journey that the holistic journey that it is. We can't tinker with one side and not attend to the other. So you can't just focus on membership being the pathway to renewal. You also need to think about all the other aspects that make up a union. You need to think about reps and you need to think about negotiations. And this is true whether you organise in the private or the public sector. You note that point uh, about I don't have a problem at work. 
being a guiding factor to whether people join or not. What's that telling us? It's telling us that we're associated with solving problems. It's potentially also telling us we're associated with uh, things that are negative rather than aspirational. And if we're only associated with things that happen episodically to people, don't be surprised if they're not reaching for us regularly on the things that affect them daily. Unions need to be grounded in collective solutions to make ourselves relevant to employers who've got problems because those problems will affect the people that we either represent or seek to represent in the future. Collective voice in a workplace should be an inalienable right, exercisable by workers through independent means, and that independent means can be delivered through a trade union if they so choose. But it's not a right that's conferred by an employer in the goodness of their heart or if they're required by the law. We have too long operated within some of these shackles. Because trade unions, of course, are both intensely practical in terms of what they can deliver for people. Help, advice, representation when you need it, more pounds in your pocket, another day's leave. But they also, of course, ideologically are highly romantic organisations because the ideals of trade unionism appeal to people in a way that gets them in the gut. I think there's room for us, particularly with young people, in appealing to people on both those levels. Despite that tough environment, unions are still winning day in, day out, in workplaces up and down the country. And we're not just winning in workplaces, we're winning in the courts, we're winning in the courts of public opinion. If you think about where the public is on employers like Sports Direct, like Uber, like McDonald's, I think they're with us rather than with the employer. And we are also making some significant breakthroughs in terms of membership and organising as well. And lots of examples, just to give you one. If somebody would have told me six months ago that at the start of this year... I would be sat in Balper's uh, office, the Airline Pilots Union, uh, in Heathrow, sat across the table from the senior management of Ryanair, talking about a recognition agreement, and then a couple of months later, that union would sign a recognition agreement with Ryanair. I just frankly wouldn't have believed you. If we are serious about growing trade union membership in this country, reaching out to those 23, 24 million people at work who aren't union members, we are going to have to work together, we're going to have to pool our resources, and we're going to have to collectively raise our game. Well, uh, that was quite an intensive uh, first session of the conference, and you heard there uh, in the order in which they spoke from Sue Ferns, who's the chair of uh, Unions 21, Gavin Kelly, chief executive of the Resolution Trust, uh, Becky Wright, director of Unions 21, launching the Roadmap to Renewal document that's downloadable from our website, www.unions21.org.uk, followed then by Mike Clancy, general secretary of Prospect, Claire Sullivan, uh, the director of employee relations for the Chartered Society of Physiotherapy, rounded off by Paul Novak the Deputy General Secretary of the TUC. And then we moved on to, in the next session, to questions of how we actually organise and meet the challenges that have have been set out. And on the panel for this uh, second session, we had Antonia Jennings from Economy, Alex Wood from the uh, Oxford Internet Institute, uh, Gary Elliott from Nautilus International, and Jenny Andrew from Prospect. And listen now in particular for some of the stuff that, that Jenny pitches about how trade unions can use data. Really interesting stuff. So we're only two years old, and one of the first things we did was a nationwide poll looking at uh, whether economics in um, the media and as spoken by politicians was accessible. 
perhaps unsurprisingly or perhaps surprisingly, we found that only 12% of people in the UK find economics as presented in the media and by politicians accessible. So we can maybe paraphrase that and say only 12% of people are understanding policy commitments on anything from wage levels to debt and deficit through to trade policy. For us, we see this as a huge democratic hole. Economics is dominating, it's everywhere, um, but people don't have the uh, tools to be able to challenge it or understand it properly. As you probably guessed, we think this lack of understanding um, leads to our democracy not working and by extension for the trade union movement and uh, uh, inability to properly be able to understand the economic forces by which you know, they may be being exploited by, by their employers. Antonia Jennings from Economy there. And, of course, a longer interview with Antonia uh, was part of our most recent podcast, which is still available from the Unions 21 website. Next up was Alex Wood, and he spoke about the potential for social media to transform union campaigns. I also think it makes new, work, new forms of worker voice possible, which are focused more on reputational damage. And this is possible because social media enables an aggregation of injustice as well as this expansive solidarity and connection uh, between uh, people who are part of the movement and haven't yet joined. As well as uh, the amplification of those protests. But I think it's key for this strategy to work is that that I think unions have a key role to play as kind of orchestrating these networks but that means they have to not bureaucratise communication. When we're organising our young members and we're bringing them out to the UK colleges at 16, 17, 18, and they're going to have a career for 30, 40 years, they're going to go global. They're going to reside globally. They might not reside in the UK. And they want to know that the union is able to reach out to them, whether they're in Australia, Brazil, Africa, it doesn't matter. Wherever they're residing, wherever they're sailing, wherever they need representation... That, that we are there, and that's, that was important to us from an international specific, which was a direct... Because it's no, good, it's no good getting into a situation where you go down the international route. You're trying to organise your young members who have a global outside on, on what they want to do. Unless you're going to be effective, unless you are going to protect people, unless you're going to get collective bargaining, unless you're going to do all of that, then, then really what was the point? There, there should be no need, um, no reason why a human is sitting down every month and going through the membership data um, to, to provide a report to your, your general secretary. It should be a computer doing that. And um, your, your organisers shouldn't need to find time to sit down at their desks and, and dip into the membership database and, and check who signed up in their branches um, in the last week. They should be getting notifications on their phone about that. Um, or your, you know, your, your um, uh, finance director could be uh, getting forecasts of income for five years' time based on, on the, the current trends in membership records, in, in the age demographics, and that kind of thing. Um, lots, lots of things that you could be thinking about that could be automated um, uh, for us, all based on the data that you hold. So uh, when we build software... Uh, we tend to build it up in layers. And what I'm proposing is, is something that starts, um, starts simple, um, building up in, in complexity towards the sort of cherry-on-the-top um, things. So we start with a, a, a website which is harvesting over, open data from the likes of the Office of National Statistics. Um, you know, we can get economic and industrial metrics, and I'm, I'm, I'm 
sure you would have some suggestions of the kind of things that we, you know, that we could be doing to render that um, accessible to trade unionists. Um, simple next stage, you know, from the standard suite, you, you go into custom view. So you can say, okay, well, I'm interested in these sectors or these regions, whatever, whatever it is that your union um, needs from it. Then from the web platform, move towards a, a standalone app, which is nice in its own right for, you know, for your organisers out on the road, uh, getting those notifications flashing up to say, look, you know, branch A, five new members this week, branch B, just drop below some critical membership density um, threshold, that kind of thing. But also, this standalone version, so imagine installing it on your PC, is absolutely essential for the next stage um, where you start to merge um, your union's private data with open data, which allows you to synthesize new analytics and insights. Um, and we can have some of those in-house tools that I mentioned before. But the standalone version on your own servers cuts out questions of, of security and privacy where we're talking about business sensitive or personal data. Basically, you never have to let that go outside your firewall. You could start to signpost other resources and, of course, signpost unions. So which unions are campaigning around and organising around the issues that I'm interested in? So, so say you're browsing stats on precarious work. And you might be a union that's looking for opportunities to collaborate on this issue with other unions, or you might be a potential member who's looking for a, a, a union that is interested in the same things that you are. And we can point you in their direction. So look, it, this is a kind of straw man um, of what we might build, but as Michelangelo surely knew, um, it takes both visionary and technical skill to make something worth having. Now, I've got some technical insights that you lot might not have, uh, but I'm not a domain expert in, in trade union business analytics. So it's kind of it's over to you at this point. Um, you bring the vision, um, and then we can talk about the technical skills that we would need to set it free. Well, listeners, just to recap, in that last session, you heard from Antonia Jennings of Economy about the need for more public education on economics. You heard from Alex Wood of the Oxford Internet Institute about the possibilities and the scope for unions to use social media to give their campaigns a distinctive edge. You heard from Gary Elliott of Nautilus International about the theory and the practice of organising across international borders. And lastly, you heard from Jenny Andrew, who brought forward her proposals for a new and exciting and potentially exceptionally useful form of software to aid union recruitment initiatives. So far in this podcast, we've heard the best bits, if you like, from our top table speakers. Uh, but what about the delegates? Penny Averson went out and about to have a word with some of them. Uh, Nona Buckley Irvin, Assistant National Officer at Unison. So in terms of my response to what was said today, I think it really highlighted the importance of recruiting young members uh, to the trade union movement. And I think sticking with the same old models isn't really going to work. As a young person myself in the trade union movement, I found that not just thinking about how to recruit members, but also change the governance might be the way forward. It's Gary Kerwin. I'm a National Officer for the Royal College of Nursing and particularly looking at organising members outside of the NHS. The work we're doing is trying to organise 
members and potential members in social care, and particularly the younger transient workforce that don't believe they could join us. Um, there's no silver bullet, but we've got we found out that they tend to accept real poor work conditions, and that, that there's nothing we can do about it. We could say we can do something about it. Join us, work with us, tell us what your problems are. We'll help you sort it out. Okay, I'm Magnus Gorham. I'm director of democracy and governance at the National Association of Head Teachers. Uh, the presentation we had this morning uh, from from Gavin was uh, was extremely interesting and and was uh, uh, really hit home the demographic issues that uh, we're all facing uh, as trade unions. But I think there is a mood in the room today that uh, that's not inevitable, uh, and and there are some very very positive uh, contributions from people around uh, how we can look uh, anew at some of the, those demographic issues and some of the issues facing us uh, and doing things in a new way. My name's Melantha. Um, I've just started working for Community and I work, came today because I wanted to know like, how the trade union movement can um, like, change and respond to the changing world of work um, and how we can still represent people and make sure they're protected at work. Um, my name's Edda, I'm here with Community um, and I came because I'm a student um, and I'm really interested in how young people can get more involved um, in trade unions um, and how um, young people can be at the forefront of developing and changing uh, trade unions like in today's world. Hi, I'm Paul Day. I'm the National Officer of the Pharmacists uh, Trade Union. I'm here today at the Unions 21 conference because I think it's really important that we work together, address the big strategic issues. Um, I thought Gavin Kelly's presentation very interesting. Uh, we're in a fortunate position ourselves as a union in that we've grown from zero to 27,000 in, in less than 10 years but we're a professional organisation and clearly we're advantaged by the, the stats he was showing us, the information he was showing us so I'm really interested in how we might help those unions that are representing the uh, lower paid, younger private sector organisations uh, workers even So would you say that's our priority at the moment? Well I think Looking at his stats, I think the most striking stat from his was that if you're an older public sector senior person, you're 17 times more likely to be a trade union member. Now, I think there's a question is, is that about a generation, i.e. those people born in the 60s and 70s who have reached that point, or is that about when you get to that position, you join a trade union member because you've got more employment traction, because you've got more to lose if you lose your job, maybe? Um, if we assume it's the latter, then what we need to do is make sure that the younger, younger lower-paid private sector uh, people, not only for their own right at this moment, join, but also so that when they become senior, uh, older people, they've already got a history of union membership. I'm Ellie Wade. I'm a patent examiner with the UK Intellectual Property Office, and I'm Prospect Union's Deputy Vice President. Um, I've really enjoyed everything I've heard today, and there's been a lot to think about. Um, but in terms of young people, I, I don't think young people want anything all that different from work than the rest of us. They want to enjoy going into work. They want to do well in their roles. They want to be confident that they'll be treated fairly, and they want to have people they can talk to and confide in. And I think unions have got a really big part to play in offering all of those things so I think there's a great deal of cause for optimism Coming up why gaming could be the solution to chronically low levels of young members in our trade unions why trade union education is certainly not falling between the two stools of digital and classroom and why Matthew Taylor needs you to write to the government
But next up, someone who needs no introduction. Take it away, Becky. Uh, colleagues, it's my pleasure to uh, chair the next session, which is the future of trade union education, and I, we're using that term fairly broadly to encompass uh, trade union education, as in rep training and development, but also the education work that unions do. And um, just to give a, a, a brief introduction to the, my colleagues on the panel. Uh, Mary Bowsted is the Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union and also the Chair of Union Learn. And um, Kevin Rowan, who is the Head of Organisation Services and Skills at the TUC and is responsible for the delivery of Union Learn. And um, Peter Bloom, who is a Senior Lecturer and Head of Department of People and Organisations at the Open University. Um, so what have we found as a result of this long eight or nine year experiment into union learning and into um, uh, union uh, CPD. The first thing we found is that it's extremely popular with members. When we run courses, they knock on the doors. So we now very rarely have branch meetings. What we have is a CPD course to which has a branch relations element. So we get people in, they get the CPD they want, and then we have a 15, 20 minute, what's going on in the area, what campaigns the union's involved in. So we really mesh learning with union organisation. The second thing we found is that when I became General Secretary of ATL, the executive was totally white and over 80% male and large retired. Now we, have, we don't have enough BMA, BAME members, but we have a much stronger representation from women, from younger women, and uh, we've got... Um, and, and we found that uh, BMA, BAME members are, are really, and women are really attractive to the CPD offer, to union learning, and have started to take up and are taking up branch secretary roles, uh, taking up equalities roles. So once you catch people, it's like organising, catch them, and then uh, they, they really come involved in the union. So the union is far less pale, male, white, and stale. And the third thing is that if you're engaged in learning on that level, then you have every right as a general secretary to say, I have an authority, I have a duty to speak out for my members on professional issues and to claim the space for issues around the curriculum, around assessment, around special needs, and around members' professionalism and the right of members to be professional. For me, I think there are, there are, there are kind of three things to, to think about. One is the structural arrangement for our learning. What is the right mix between digital, social and experiential learning and how do we facilitate that uh, given that you know, reps are in completely different places and digital is a great offer if you can't get time off, you're in an unrecognised workplace, if for any reason we can't kind of uh, bring you into a classroom, it's certainly got a very very strong place uh, in increasing participation but we need to complement that with space for reps to get together, space for reps to kind of find advice from, from unions and from other reps as well as building that solidarity uh, be between trade unions. Uh, secondly, and I think this is a kind of internal challenge, but one that's really important for us, how we maintain and continue to build our capacity to make sure that we can build the online materials that respond to the kind of needs and demands and aspirations of, uh, of reps and trade unions. Uh, and thirdly, and again, I think this is, um, all of these elements are critical, is make sure that we're listening to unions and listening to reps about what is important for them. Because I think if we assume that we know what reps want, 
there's no better way of guaranteeing that we're going to lose them. So we need to make sure they're continuing to listen to reps and building that kind of flexibility in our programme so that we can design our education officer that meets those aspirations as well as tying into the kind of key challenges and key campaign priorities that that union's identifying. I think this has been a really, really exciting year or 18 months or so for us because it's one of the parts of our event, let us say, where we can demonstrate genuine success. Uh, and the challenge for us now is to build on that moving forward. But you can probably tell by my accent that uh, I'm from the U.S. So I want to start with a very, very brief uh, story. One of the things that have inspired, for instance, our, our research group and why we're doing what we're doing. When we think about union learning, we oftentimes think about how we can better teach reps and how we can better teach union education. But it has a much more important and transformational aspect. And it brings back to the fact that we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, which you would not necessarily connect to unions. And in a liberal kind of mindset, it's very easy not to because we have a day for him. He is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And it's about Martin Luther King. But that's not the story. And that's not the story for the people who are actually part of the civil rights movement. That story was the fact that in the 1930s, blacks were allowed to join unions. After the Second World War, they learned union skills, and they took those union skills, applied them to the NAACP, and for two decades built up the largest anti-apartheid movement before South Africa in Western and non-Western history. So when we're talking about this, what we're actually talking about is teaching people skills not only to make a difference in their own life, to actually achieve social change together. And I think that's important. People talk about the digital divide, but what they don't talk about is the fact that while there's a huge digital divide, there's actually a quite small, increasingly mobile divide. And that's because people increasingly have access to mobiles and know how to use them effectively, whether through Wi-Fi or apps. And that's an important thing that some of our research has begun to show. So what we've been looking at is how can we use varieties of games in order to help teach union organization knowledge, help to spread this knowledge, and then help to bring it in and show different alternatives. So one of the key things that we said is the fact that we would like to create mobile games that can be used by everyone. The first, just actually teach people how to build unions and connect up to unions. We think that's really important. Secondly, We've noticed that there's a, a huge gap between the types of skills people need to even just be everyday caseworkers for union reps. So we'd like to teach games that can help do that. Thirdly, we'd like to construct games that will help people actually understand different ways in which they can collectively organize and the different types of strategies that this can be involved with. And fourthly, fourthly, we would like to be able to use games in order to show people alternative forms of organizational arrangements that go beyond capitalist employer-employee relationships towards things that are kind of like union-led cooperative uh, workers' cooperatives. Well, I hope you would agree, uh, listeners, that was another good session. Mary Boosted linking CPD with trade union education in a way that seems to have massively benefited the ATL section of the new NEU. Peter Bloom talking about how gaming can engage a whole new currently disengaged section uh, of, of the workforce. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from both of them about both of those issues. But then we moved on to a session on collective voice, worker voice, uh, with Karen O'Loughlin, Matthew Taylor, the author of the eponymous uh, Review into Modern Employment Practices, and Matthew Ball uh, from Community. Uh, Matthew Taylor started off by reminding us uh, presciently, I think, that the BEIS consultative period on his proposals is still open and will remain open for another month or so. 
But then we kind of got into the meat of the issue and some stark differences of opinion. We need a kind of twin-track approach which says that uh, what we want is an economy in which employers of all kinds recognise the importance of proper trade unionism and collective bargaining at some level or another um, as something which is an important part of a strategy both of economic dynamism and social justice. And that's where we're aiming towards. We uh, need, as I said in my comments, to make common cause with people who may not go as far in that argument as we might wish, but at least go in the right direction given where we are right now. And I certainly agree that there is a shift in the kind of discourse. There is a recognition that an economy which is not better able to tackle issues of inequality and living standards for the people in the bottom half and the bottom third in particular, it, you know, is problematic. And I, I meet very few business leaders. Obviously, the business leaders I meet are the kind of nicer ones. But I, meet, I rarely meet a business leader who doesn't recognise that issue, doesn't recognise that problem. And I think that, you know, amongst the most thoughtful of them, the question is not, is that the outcome I want to see? Would I like to be an employer who was able to pay my lower-paid workers more? Would I like to be an employer that was able to find paths of progression for my lower-paid workers? Most of the business people I speak to say, yes, I do. The challenge to them is, how do you do it? I think that there's an understanding that we need a more inclusive economy now, and there's an understanding that technological change cannot be at the expense of um, the interests of workers as a whole. And we need to be part of that conversation and moving people uh, along that road. When the globalisation, financial globalisation, was in full spate, people who questioned that were told a number of things. They were told there, um, there will be some losers, but there'll be many more winners. They were told financial globalisation will undermine certain things you care about, like national sovereignty, or it will create greater insecurity, but that's a price worth paying. And we were told... You know, you don't need to understand it because there's some really clever people in banks and they do understand it and it's all going to be fine. Now, I think most people recognise now that that was a disaster and not just that a lot of very serious people are now questioning whether globalisation, financial globalisation was nearly such a good thing as it seemed at the time, but also um, we've got Trump and we've got Brexit and we've got the other signs of people turning against globalisation. The danger is that when we talk about technology, we hear exactly the same discourse, the same thing, which is, well, look, you know, there will be losers, but there'll be many more winners. You know, yes, it will take away things you care about, like privacy or protecting your children or your ability to raise taxes, but you just need to kind of put up with it. And thirdly, you don't, you don't need to understand it because there are these clever guys in California who care about their children, and they do. And, I mean, that last bit's looking particularly problematic at the moment, I think. So <laughs> I think people are... What I'm saying is people are open to those arguments. And... We shouldn't have a conversation with people that says you've got to agree with everything we agree with about the end point. We can start to have a conversation with people who agree with us in terms of the fact there is a problem to be solved. And also recognise that for many people, it, they don't need to be beaten up around the head. They don't need to be beaten around the head ideologically. What they're actually looking for is us to work with them to find solutions because they share our concerns, but they don't know quite what to do about it. Yeah, there's so much in there, you know. I could be here till 7 o'clock tonight just responding to what you've said alone, let alone the questions uh, from the floor. The, um, just in relation to the questions, I mean, some of what Matthew has said there, I, 
I would fundamentally disagree with. Right? Um, obviously, I respect your right to have those opinions, and I'm not familiar with your report, but I will read it. More people, more people hate me than like me in this building. I don't, I don't dislike you. I don't dislike you because I disagree with you. But the, uh, but I will read your report because I, I think that when you're talking about, like, because I, like, I'm a, just a little bit more cynical, right? I'm 18 years working full time for the union, and I was 10 years a shop steward in the private sector before that, right? And I have almost every year or all of the time, very frequently, I come across employers who are deeply troubled by the poverty wages that they pay their, um, their employees. But mm, I'm wealthy. How does that happen, I wonder? I'm very wealthy, but I'm very troubled by that. And, and I know that sounds like I'm being... I'm very troubled by my poverty wages, but I personally have created a lot of personal wealth from this business, right? So there's something not right with that response. And in some of those businesses as well, we have organised workers who have challenged those employers and who have improved their terms and conditions and the business is still there. Right? And if you have to run a business on the basis of poverty wages, that's not a sustainable business model, in my view. Right? And we need to take a little bit of a harder line on that as a trade union, I think. Right? So you mentioned the consultation thing. Right? The consultation is very, very useful for trade unions because there are some of the legal structure around it, particularly when businesses are sold, you know, if there's transfer of undertakings for workers, then the union has a legal right um, to be consulted in relation to that. If people are members of the union, the legislation is very specific. You consult the people or their trade union. So if the people are members of the trade union, even if the employer doesn't recognise you for collective bargaining, they have to speak to you if, the, if your members say so. Right? So if you, re if you add to that, then, that there is more space in this consultation process for non-union organisations... Um, I think that's like turkeys voting for Christmas, to be quite honest with you, right? We all know who, like, the, the anti-union activity ranges from very aggressive union busting to union substitution, right? And we all recognise the union busting and we jump up and down and say that's terrible. But actually the more dangerous strategy is union substitution because people don't even realise that that's what's happening. And they're being persuaded and in, given information that suggests, you know, you're better off doing this than being with the union and there's all these short term solutions. So if you open the consultation door, which is a good organising tool for the union, in, in pieces of legislation where you have absolute, absolute rights for consultation, you can organise workers in around that in a much safer way than perhaps you can sometimes. So if you make more space there, the employer will take advantage of that. The employer will set up a staff association or a non-union group who have the same entitlement to, to consultation and you limit the space for the union to operate in. So I think that's, that's something that I would be very, very slow uh, to take on board, but I will read your report and see if that changes my mind. Not sure after 18 years of cynicism that it would, but I'll, I'll try it. The government regulation is everything, because if you have a statutory right to collective bargaining, then um, you're operating in a, in a safer place. I mean, workers don't have to go on strike. If that's not their first experience with the union, is have to join the union and then have a strike to get collective bargaining rights. I mean, that's a scary place for people, especially younger people who have zero um, historical engagement or understanding of what the union is. Uh, so the, the government position on, on collective bargaining and trade union recognition is extremely important. Well, from my perspective, when I talk about recognition, I'm talking about trade union recognition. The right for people who are in a trade union to, ha to, to have collective bargaining with your employer. Um, and that that would have some legal basis so that the employer can't just say, OK, I employ 200 people, you can join the union if you like, 
no problem, off you go, I'll just never speak to you and I'll never collectively engage with you. I don't think that that's... That trade union rights are there to address the imbalance of power and collective bargaining is really the only way to do that, in, in my view. We credibly represent thousands and thousands of steelworkers across the UK. It's not that we've got uh, a handful of members in each company. It's that if it came to it, we could shut every single one of those companies down. It's not something that we're planning on doing, and it's not something we've done for 30, nearly 40 years now. But, but that industrial power is where our credibility comes from. And if, if we can't maintain that, then the government wouldn't talk to us and the employers wouldn't talk to us. There are some issues around sectoral collective bargaining and the risks of uh, becoming a union movement that negotiates for people who aren't in trade unions because they don't need to be members anymore. And, and the moment you get that, you start um, getting this drift away from what workers actually want and think. And we've, we've heard various examples today of um, good work with unions listening to what their members want and changing the, the way they maybe have done things for a very long time. As long as we question our relevance at all times, then hopefully we can maintain our power and increase our membership. Just to clarify something, I'm not arguing at all that where you have uh, trade union recognition that, that you should be standing idly aside as the employer tries to push the trade union aside and place it by a staff organisation. What I am saying is that it's important to support the idea of independent representation initially, even if it's not through a trade union, because exactly as you said, it provides the opportunity to be able to come along. And I think that the business model for unions needs to be a kind of freemium model in which what the unions are doing is providing free support to anybody who wants to be supported as uh, uh, an employee or a self-employed person in order that they can enhance their rights, uh, in order that they can engage in um, consultation machinery, but all the time say you'll get a much better service and you'll get much better support if you take the next leap and you become a trade union member. And I don't think those things might feel like they're contradictory. You might feel, well, hang on, if we provide support to people who aren't trade union members, then why would they join trade unions? If we provide support to representatives at work who aren't be represented through a trade union, then why would they ever join? But I don't think that is how it works, actually. I think if you support people and they understand you, they become more likely to take that next step. I think the reality is complicated. Um, and I think that um, I'm like union substitution. Um, I, I do believe that there are good initiatives that happen in the community and there are really good social issues um, that the unions row in behind and support on that basis right, because they're social justice issues. Um, but when it comes to the workplace, um, yes, you should support people who are trying to organise themselves, but ultimately my view is that the message should be organise yourself into a trade union. Yeah. Okay, so... Um sounds to me suspiciously like edging towards agreement on that issue. However, however... I don't know that I'd go that far. However, so. even, <laughs> even, even if we haven't done that, there's actually nothing wrong with disagreement. If disagreement, which I hope it's done today, flows from a serious examination of the evidence and the facts, and I hope that's what we've achieved today. Sue Ferns bringing that session uh, to a close. Uh, the speakers were Karen O'Loughlin, Matthew Taylor and Matt Ball. And I don't know about you, but I thought it really got to the guts of real fundamental issues about trade union organising and how to increase collective voice. 
Uh, that wasn't just the end of the session, it was the end of the day as well. A really exciting day of debate and ideas and hypothesis and counter-argument. But it's all very well for us to think it went quite well, I think. More than quite well. Everyone seemed to have a good time, lots of good contri- contributions. What do people from outside Unions 21 uh, think about our conference? Let's start off with Tom Hunt from our good friends at Sperry, the Sheffield Political Economic Research Institute, uh, and his view on the day. I helped organise the panel earlier on about new ideas for unions to engage with the future workforce um, because we felt that there is a need for um, the focus in this debate to be on learning from elsewhere, learning from the US, learning from data, learning from other outside organisations like Economy so that unions can access new ideas. And talking of economy, here's Antonia Jennings again. The conference has been super exciting, a really good range of different speakers, and the focus of the conference being moving unions into the 21st century and youth and their involvement in unions, I think, is really, really key. Oh, thanks for that, Antonia. That's, that's good to hear. Gavin Kelly, what did you think? I go to a lot of events about futures of trade unions, and I like what stands out for me about the discussion we've had today is the positivity and the idea that there are kind of solutions to some of the challenges that were discussed. It wasn't a moan fest, it wasn't a woe fest, it was quite a lot of practical stuff about what different people are doing and others could learn from. And the openness of that discussion was really welcome. Last word on this to Paul Novak of the TUC. And after we've heard from Paul, Becky and I will do our best to sum up uh, from a very busy day before playing out to the soundtrack from that Like a Swede video we've been talking about. And I tell you, They've made collective bargaining look cool, look sexy, look lively, so stick with us for that. Paul? When you think about the reps and the full-time officers and union activists in the room today, quite often our day-to-day work is so overwhelming, representing members, trying to sort out problems in workplaces. It's hard to carve out the space, really, just to to think about, you know, the big challenges that face the trade union movement. So I think what's really good about Unis 21 events is it does give you that space to talk about the big ideas, to think radically about the future of the trade union movement, to make sure in the TUC's 150th anniversary year that we've got a, a movement that's fit for the next 150 years as well. Well, how was it for you, Becky, that conference, which has just finished? I'm really tired. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was great. It was really thought provoking which is the intent of all of the unions 21 conferences to just get some ideas you might not agree with everything and that's absolutely fine but at least you're sort of thinking and for me the things I absolutely loved uh, were the, uh, Jenny's idea of a data studio. Stu- studio loved that idea thought it was really good uh, obviously like a Swede I, we mentioned before, but I love it. If you have not seen the Like a Swede video, um, by the time you hear this, I'm hoping it's going to be embedded on the website. It's certainly on our Twitter feed. You will, you'll love this. It's good. It got a really good... I think that got the largest round of applause, I think. Yeah, you maybe. <laughs> Obviously, everybody that's very got a really good round of applause. Um, and it just... I think it was one of those things where it's... We actually all know the reasons and the troubles that we have for unions and it's whether we're going to sort of pony up and invest and actually take some risks and be prepared to be the projects that didn't work. And maybe it's because I originally started in a project that didn't work. I don't really have... I don't think we should be fearful of that. I think we should 
kind of take every project works in its own kind of way and is a learning point in its own kind of way and I think we should just basically throw the kitchen sink at it find a way to support smaller unions to uh, develop and grow and just sort of go for it well we're kind of all in this together we really are all in this together who, who was it that said that said the last the last light in the last union office being turned out that's Mike. what that's what nobody wants and i think that's true i, I, I you know i you don't see anyone apart from a very small minority of, of people who are philosophically exceptionally hostile who want to see the death of trade, trade unions but but you know we need more influence yeah. and i really think as roosevelt said the only thing the only thing we have to fear is fear itself indeed what a positive end a positive end to an extremely positive day but before we go, I do just need to say a couple of special thank yous to Polly Averson and to Henry Skews for their assistance in producing this podcast. Uh, it really was good to have you along, and thanks very much for your help. Thank you to all our guests and speakers. Uh, and also to remind you that we're going to play out with the soundtrack from Like a Swede. This is the video made by the Swedish equivalent of the TUC to champion the fact that all the good things in Swedish life have come about through collective bargaining and the productive uh, involvement of both sides of industry in, in reaching agreement and driving the economy forward. Really worth a listen to, and you can watch the video, as I say, on the Unions 21 website, www.unions21.org.uk. Well, listeners, we hope you enjoyed that podcast, which we recognise was jam-packed. Lots of voices, lots of ideas, lots of things bouncing around. Hopefully it fired some thoughts and ideas in your own minds as well. If you've got a view, if you violently agree or disagree or think that we're travelling in the wrong direction or think that we need to explore certain things a little more than we're doing at the moment, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at unions21. And as I've just said, of course, you can catch up with all the latest developments on our website, www.unions21.org.uk. Uh, we'll be back with the next podcast in a couple of weeks' uh, time or so, I guess. This is the start of the journey, not an end point, that's for sure. Indeed. So until next time, this is me, Simon Sapper. This is me, Becky Wright. Saying thanks for listening and goodbye. goodbye. Business like the Swede. Business like the Swede. I do business like the Swede. Business like the Swede. I do business like the Swede. Business, business like the Swede. I clock in at my desk around a quarter to nine. Settle on my Swiss ball that straightens my spine. I got a retirement plan. Yeah, my future's secured. And if I get a mouse elbow, I'm fully insured. I treat my employees with love and respect. We have a collective agreement no one can reject. We agree on great perks, talk straight and direct. And the rising pile of money wings is having no effect. Business like the Swede. Two parts in decision making. Business like the Swede. It's a win-win situation. Business like the Swede. It ain't all work, no pay. Business like the Swede. Making money all day. Yeah, we get parental leave plus the six weeks vacation. So that when we get back to work, we're on our A game. Co-decide with the boss on all kinds of shit. And the frisk, watch be drawn, keep us looking fit. Business like the Swede. Two parts in decision making. Business like the Swede. It's a win-win situation. Business like the Swede. It ain't all work, no play. Business like the Swede. Uh. Making money all day. Yeah, we be like bread and butter. We be like wine and cheese. With the collective agreement for industrial peace. I'm running business like a Swede and it's a winning thing. No
No government involves two parts that are king. Business like a swing. Business like a swing. I'll do business like a swing. The Unions 21 podcast was presented by Simon Sapper and Becky Wright. It was a Makes You Think production.